If you'll notice here, as I was, I've been praying, I've been trying to lead our worship this morning. I've been really focusing in on this theme of dependence on God. How He is the one who is in control of all things. You know, we live our lives so often, if we're honest, thinking that we're more in control than we truly are. And I was reflecting this week as I was preparing the sermon, I was I was thinking about my children, and, and you know, my, my children, if they don't, they don't want for anything. And if they do, what do they do? They come to their father, or they come to their mother, and they ask for it. There is not this sense of, I'm going to have any need. It's, all my needs are going to be provided for. Now, they don't have the means in and of themselves to provide for themselves. They are fully dependent upon their parents for everything. But as we grow older, right, we gain more autonomy, we begin to live and believe this lie that we are in control instead of realizing that all of us are ultimately like my children and their parents, like we are to our Heavenly Father. He is the one who is ultimately in control of all of these things. And despite the temptation to want to hold on to and guard things in our lives to maintain control. It is the Lord who is faithful to us, and he will bring great blessing as we trust him with everything. Now, the hardest thing, well, I don't know if the hardest thing, the hardest thing for me, I'm going to guess if I had to canvas the room, the hardest thing for the vast majority of us when it comes to trusting God is in this issue of finances, in this issue of trusting the Lord will continue to provide for us and care for us monetarily. It is a difficult thing. And as we're going to see in our passage this morning in Malachi chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, now's a good time to do that. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. What we're going to notice is that the hearts of the people were not trusting in the Lord to provide. And there's a lot of very practical implications for us this morning. So what are we going to do? Where are we going to go with this passage this morning? We're going to look first at Malachi 3, 6 through 12. We're going to look at what this would have meant for the Israelites reading this in their context, in their day, how it applies for them. And then as we get near the end, we're going to make a very practical transition to just looking at what does this look like for us in our modern day situation. We're going to talk very practically about how this passage speaks to where we are today. So if you will, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The first thing we notice as we look at this passage is God's affirmation to the people that he has not changed. He will not change. It's a reminder to the people. We've seen here, God is continually reminding the people as we've gone through this book of Malachi. God is continually reminding the people of who he is. I have loved you, says the Lord. And what do they say to him? How have you loved us? Right? There's this call and response between God and the people where he reminds them of who he is and what he has done for them. And again, we see here now as we begin verse 6, I do not change. This is a reference to God's the, the big fancy theological term is God's immutability. God's immutability. He is unable to change. Louis Burkhoff says, The unchangeableness of God as taught in the scriptures clearly does not imply there is no movement in God. He is unchangeable in his inner being, his attributes, his purposes, his motives of action, and his promises. So it isn't that God is some sort of stale, stiff God who just is here unmoving, that he doesn't have have this sense of being able to um, know his people and to be able to answer prayers, but rather it is that in his being he is unchangeable. And we see here the way in which he is showing his unchangeableness, his faithfulness to the people, is in his patience. In his promises to them. He says, I do not change, therefore you, O children of of Jacob, are not consumed. What is the promise he made to them? He says, you will be a people for me. You will be my nation. I will not consume you. I will be patient towards you. The the nation of Israel has been sinning. They have been rebelling against God. And he has not consumed them. He has not destroyed them. We see here that in verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. This is a reference back to Moses when God gives the Ten Commandments, when he gives all the law to Israel. And he tells them, If you follow them, you will be blessed. If you do not, you will be cursed. And he says, I am remaining faithful to you. I will not consume you and I will not destroy you. Even though the people have turned aside from God. He says to them, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you. God has not gone anywhere. His presence has always been there. 
He's telling them, come back to me. Do not abandon me. Do not turn from me. As a groom to a bride, I have been faithful to you. He says, if this happens, he says, I will return to you. It's a promise of his judgment being staved off. What does this look like? What is required for Israel to return to God? And by extension, the question is for us then, what does it look like for us to return to the Lord if we have been sinning, if we have been far off from God? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what do we see here? We see that God's desire is not to consume us, to destroy us as a result of our sin. The Lord is gracious. He wants us to come to him. He wants us in his presence. That is his desire. But what is necessary for that to happen? What is necessary is repentance. A recognition that we have sinned, that we have been far off from God, that we have been wandering away from Him. He desires that we reach repentance. So what does that look like? What does that repentance look like? James Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This repentance that is necessary when coming back to the Lord is one in which we must be acknowledging our sin. We need to be acknowledging and crying out to God saying, what I have been doing has been taking me away from you. I want to return to you, Lord God. I want to be restored to you. I have had times in my life where I have wandered. This is part, something that all of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, you feel. Where you, you're wandering from the Lord. You don't sense his nearness. The psalmist cries out with this. Lord, where are you? And how often it is, if not always, that it's our sin which is leading us away from him. Our sin which is creating this wall, this barrier between us and the Lord. And he's calling us back to him, saying, repent, repent, acknowledge your sin, draw near to me. It's in that place, the blood of Christ, as we talked about earlier, it's the the blood of Christ washes over you and makes you whiter than snow. And this is when the Lord calls the people to return to him. This is of which he is speaking. Return to me. But what do we see from Israel? We see from Israel the same old questioning that has been happening this entire book. What do they say? How shall we return? God then responds. And then they say, how have we robbed you? Right? This questioning of God. What is it we have done? And the Lord continually responding to them out of his patience and love. The Lord has given them the law. They know. 
what they have done. And yet the Lord in his patience continues to respond. If you think about it, chapter 1, verse 2 of Malachi, how have you loved us? Then the Lord tells them in, uh, in later, a few verses later that you have polluted and despised what I have commanded you to do. And they say, how have we polluted? How have we despised? Chapter 2, verse 14. Why do you not accept our offerings? Chapter 2, verse 17. How have we wearied you, O God? The Lord has given them the laws. They know the laws. And yet, they are unrepentant. Let this be a warning to us. This is not where we want to be. When the Lord calls us out, as we're reading through his scriptures, and the Holy Spirit is convicting us, our response should not be defensiveness, but ought to be repentance. They say, the Lord says, or they say to God, how shall we return? God says to them in verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the Lord responds, in your tithes and your contributions. What is happening here for Israel? They're not bringing their tithes. They're not bringing their first fruits to the Lord. And it's here that we need to stop and we need to take a little bit and we need to really understand the concept of tithes and offerings within the Old Testament context. And this is where we'll really start to transition and begin to understand then now how that connects with us. Because... You see, the Lord, when we think of tithes and offerings, as 21st century Christians, where do we immediately go? I have to give money, I have to write a check and put it in. That is not what the Israelites would think. They, the Lord does not ask for money. This is an agrarian society. The Lord is asking for the fruits of their labor, the work that they have put forth, the, the, the food that they have grown, the animals that they have raised. This is what the Lord is asking for. And this is significant. This is significant. If the Lord had asked for money, actual physical money, this would not have been a difficult thing for the Israelites to give up. Why? They were not, well, for one, there wasn't a lot of it to have. They weren't dependent on it. I could give you money, and I still have a farm where I'm growing things and animals that I'm raising. I will still survive. I will still live. So why is the Lord asking for that? Because the Lord wants to know that our hearts are tied to him. That our hearts are calling out to him for what we need. He knows that for an agrarian society, nothing is more important than your crops. There were three types of giving that happened in the Old Testament. So there was the regular giving that you would bring to the temple that would help to support the Levite priests. There was a regular giving that you had there. We see that. We know that that sort of thing existed, actually, because the precedent was set when Abraham begins giving to Melchizedek. And this is the precedent we see, we're told in Hebrews 7, is essentially the precedent that is set, then set for the Israelites to be giving regularly to the priests, to be providing for them in their work. So that was where the whole word for tithe comes up, or the tenth. The tenth was given to the temple. However, there were other, two other types of giving. There was festival giving, 
which you might do for the various feasts that they had, you would bring an offering. We see that in Deuteronomy 12. And then we also see charity towards the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed in Deuteronomy 14. What's happening here is ultimately the people are actually really not just giving 10%, which is what we're often taught we should give as sort of a baseline. The people are giving upwards of 20 to 25% regularly of, of, their, of what they are bringing in. However, the important aspect to recognize with this tithes and contributions here is that it is an overflowing of what the Lord has provided in order to bless the community. Hear me again. The tithes and contributions are a giving of the overflow which the Lord has provided in order to bless and strengthen the community. Now, we give... We say to give from the first fruits, right? Because there is a trust there that the Lord will continue to bless. But the understanding there is that as I give from what the first fruits of what the Lord has provided for me, he will continue to provide. Out of the heart of God flows abundance and blessing. Do you see this? Out of the heart of God flows abundance and blessing. He desires to give good things to his children. And when we take them, or when Israel was taking them and hoarding them for themselves, curses come upon them. You see what it says. The the people in verse 8, they haven't given to the Lord. And then we're told in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Not just part of it. Give all of it. That there may be food in my house. We might even add to that so that others might be blessed. Because we see that as the example time and again with what is given from the people of Israel to others. Is that there is blessing that flows from this. God desires for there to be a cascade of blessing. If you were to think of like a waterfall, a waterfall is just water pouring upon pouring upon pouring. The water's not going to end. You don't look at a waterfall and think, I wonder when that water's going to stop coming. You just expect it to keep flowing and to continue providing life. If you've ever seen a waterfall that comes over, and then goes into the valley. The valley that flows out of that, that comes out of that, is full of green, beautiful goodness. There is blessing that comes forward from there. And the Lord is saying, I have blessed you. Give from that place. He says in verse 10 at the end of it, And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. When was the last time that Israel saw the windows of heaven open up? When? They're wandering through the wilderness. And what does the Lord do? Every day, manna on the ground. He's opening up the windows of heaven. He's saying, in the moment when you had absolutely nothing, you couldn't even work with your hands, I was providing. Because you were following after me. 
will continue to open up the windows of heaven. And I will continue to bless you. And he challenges them. He says, put me to the test. See that I will continue to provide for you. Do not hold back. The Lord invites Israel to generous, radical giving. And what's the promise? The other nations are going to look at you and they're going to recognize the blessing that I continue to give to you. Now, temptation in today's age is that this becomes prosperity gospel. Right? You've all seen the televangelist on TV that says, if you give me money, God will bless you. Right? That's not what the Lord is saying. It's not a, I'm going to give you if, you, if you do this and you do that. We've got worse righteousness going on there. That's not what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying, I will continue to provide for you. Trust me. Know that I will continue to walk with you. And from that place, we can have radical generosity towards those around us. give you an example of this. When I was in seminary at Westminster, it was our first, Crystal and I had just moved here. It was our first semester, my first semester at Westminster. And we had moved into a little apartment, um, just a couple hundred dollars a month. We did not have any money, right? And I'll never forget it. Within that first semester, I had met a, a, a guy there. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor down in North Carolina now. Um, but met a, met a gentleman there. It was just he was a, a beautiful family, and they had about five, they had five kids, maybe a sixth on the way. And I remember talking with him one day after classes, and he was just sharing me that financially they were really struggling. Now, Crystal and I, we did not have much. All right, we did not have much, but it was just she and I. We didn't have any kids yet, and I thought, you know what, this guy, I got to make sure that he's eaten. So I went down and I and I purchased a. Uh, a gift card for giant, you know, $100, gave it to him. Now, in hindsight, now that I have two children, I realize $100 doesn't really get you a whole lot at giant, maybe like a stick of gum. But, you know, it was what the Lord had provided for me, and I wanted to bless him. I gave it, not thinking, I'm never going to see that money again. It's the Lord has blessed us, let's give, right? And it was beautiful. It was such a blessing to see him receive that. Now, fast forward, about four weeks later, I find out that Westminster, now I knew I had to take Greek classes at Westminster, but I find out that there's a second semester Greek that happens only during the winter time, and it's going to cost me $1,000 to take. And I didn't know this. So here I'm like, oh, great, I just gave away 10% of that that I could have. <laughs> this, is, this is within weeks. And I'm thinking, all right, Lord, I don't know where this money is going to come from. I'm just going to trust you that you will provide. In the same way that you used me and Crystal to help provide for this other family, I'm going to trust that you're going to provide. And it was, I think I, think I said this, but it was about $1,000 to take the second semester class. And if I didn't take this class, 
the way Westminster, I love Westminster, but the way that their system works, if you don't take that second semester class, you're basically backtracked a whole year, right? And uh, I'll never forget, about two days after I found this out, I get a call from a woman in Chicago um, that the YMCA that I had worked for prior to moving to Philadelphia, she calls and she goes, hey, Nate, how are you doing? And I was like, hey, I'm doing well, Lynn, how are you? She goes, listen, you never picked up your last check. And I said, I had a last check? (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's about $985. I figured you'd probably want me to send it to you, so I'm going to send it your way. What is the point here? Is the point that God is always going to send you money? No, brother and sister, I have, I have story upon story of that. Like, like this. Is it always that the Lord is going to provide money? No. Frankly, the money is irrelevant. What comes from this heart of generosity is blessing, is joy. Take all the money in the world, God. I don't care. It is not mine. I just want to know your joy. I want to know your blessing. And this is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, listen, you're so concerned about hoarding things for yourself. You're so concerned that I won't continue to provide for you that you're missing out on the blessings. Why do you do this to yourself? Do you not trust me? That I will be faithful to you? Brothers and sisters, whether I had gotten that $1,000 or not back later on, a few weeks later, the Lord still would have continued to bless me. It has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with the fact that the Lord will remain faithful to his promises. That he will continue to bless you. He will continue to care for you. And everyone else around you, the nations are going to watch. And they're going to go, oh, what is happening there? So how does, this, how does this all apply to us today? What do we see happening here? Because we don't live in an agrarian society where we're giving you know, the, the crops. Where we're not bringing the... I've, I don't know about you, I've never owned a cow. And I probably never will own a cow. But the truth of the matter is, is that I do have money in my bank account. And while it wouldn't really feel like much of a pinch for me to have to give up a cow, because even if I owned one, what am I going to do with it? To give up of my financial resources, that right there is going to test how much I trust God. It's so easy for us to put our faith and security in that, in the money. So where do we see in the New Testament, where do we see examples of giving? Where do we see examples of financially supporting? For one, we see it in 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. I'm just going to go, I'm going to read, you you don't necessarily need to go there um, with me in your Bibles, but I am going to read through these because I think it's important for us to just hear what the scriptures say about it. 1 Timothy 5, Verses 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we do see here 
that there is an importance for the church, the local church, to be supporting those who are regularly teaching and preaching before the congregation. I'll tell you right now, I am working a a 40-hour-a-week job on, uh, on top of doing this as well. It is not easy to do both. All right? If you are able as a congregation to provide for a minister so that they don't need to, obviously mine's a different situation, right? I'm just interim here. But if you're able to provide for a minister so that they can continually and regularly be ministering to you, you will also be receiving the blessing from that because they are spiritually pouring out into you. It is important that we are supporting those who are teaching in that way. But then we also see in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 3 through 12, Paul, when discussing whether or not you ought to support those who are ministerially pouring out into you, says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. There's the first Timoth- the reference there that we saw a second ago in 1 Timothy. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. We see there this idea of sharing in the crop, the blessing, the overflow, the pouring out into others. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? We ought to be supporting those who are ministerially pouring out and spiritually nourishing. So for the local churches, from the local church's perspective, that looks as those who are pouring out in the, the local church and also those who we might support as missionaries in other places. We want to be supporting in that way. But then also, another, another group that we see that needs to be supported by the local church, we see in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. We see here, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul is reminded, do not forget the poor. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, I know I'm going quick here, right? But I want to make, I want to read directly from the scriptures here so you know I'm not just making these things up. Not that you'd think I would do that, but I just want to make sure. Money's a funny thing. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no need for collecting when I come. What is Paul saying here? That as Christians, we need to be putting money aside to be caring for those who are in need. As local churches, 
We have those in our congregations who we know will be in need. Are we sharing our resources with one another? Are we caring for one another? Or do we just think, oh, well, I hope they figure it out. Acts 4, what is the example we see of the early church? Acts 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were, land, were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. What do we see here? The early church. There were individuals within it that had extra homes, extra land. And they were, they were like, why? Sell it. Pour out. Radical generosity to the community. Making sure that everyone who was within the family did not have any physical needs. Now, physical needs being cared for must always go hand in hand with spiritual nourishment. Why do I say this? Why do I say this? Think about any example of Christ in the New Testament. When he heals someone, he doesn't just physically deal with them, but he lets them know, spiritually, you need this more than anything else. So as we are seeking to bless and pour out and care for those around us, we don't want to just give the money just to give. We don't want to just, just reach out and give someone a hand up just to do that, just so someone maybe can feel more comfortable in this life. That's not the point. The point is to use that as a tool, as a means to connect with our spiritual need for nourishment. How we need to be spiritually cared for. The question then comes up. Well, how much ought I to give? And how often ought I to give? One, I would encourage you to be giving regularly. Notice I don't say when. The point is not to create some sort of strict, stringent law for you. But to be giving regularly. Why? Because if you were forgetful people, if you're not giving regularly, if you're not making a habit of it, you will forget and your heart will start to watch the numbers in that bank account grow and start to feel more and more of a tie to that and more security in that. And how much? It's a question that all of us have to answer for ourselves. Jesus never says, give a tenth. He never gives us a number. Why? Why would Jesus, Jesus, it would be so much easier if he just gave me a number. And if I just shot for that number, I'd know. I'm okay. Because it's not about a number. It's about where your heart is. Are you trusting the Lord? As soon as numbers start getting thrown out there, as soon as those goals, we start hitting those goals and we feel real good about ourselves. Look at me. I'm doing it. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's about in this passage in Malachi. It's not what it's about for us today. The Lord wants to know, where is your heart? What is it that you care for? Do you love me more? 
Or do you trust that, that tool that you have, that money in your bank account more? What do you, where is it? And so for each of us, it's going to be a little bit different. But truthfully, the way that we give is what's more important. It ought to be an act of worship, a response of love and care for those around us. In that moment when I gave to that brother in seminary, I wasn't thinking about some magical number. I was going, okay, what can I give to be a blessing to this person? What can I give? And there was joy that was found there. In hindsight, you know, I say $100. To some people, that's a lot of money. To others, it's not. That's why you can't start naming numbers. It's about where each of us are at and what's going to reveal to our own hearts that our our joy is in Christ and our trust is in Him and not in what we have. Now, I'm going to close here, just real briefly, with a message specifically for the leadership of the church. This is important. Because oftentimes, you know, I stand up here, you know, every Sunday I've been here, I stand up here and I ask, I, I tell us, remember to give. Give faithfully, right? Remember to support the ministry of the, con- of the church. And that is good. But oftentimes, if we're honest, over the years, there may be a sense of, why do I give? What does this go towards? What's really happening with this money? And maybe that's not from like a skeptical, cynical place of thinking that anyone's trying to rob you or anything. Um, but there's just sort of a, what is this going towards? For leadership within the church, it's important that we are giving the, 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 the lay people, the congregation, a sense of what it is they're supporting. Where is this going? Making sure people are informed of the fact that, hey, you know, we don't necessarily need to name names of people that are struggling in the congregation if, you know, if that person doesn't want us to. We don't necessarily need to say, you know, we gave X amount of money to so-and-so to help them out. But we do need to make sure that the congregation knows that your giving is going towards helping and caring for others around you. There ought to be joy and blessing that comes from that. Your giving ought to be an act of worship. But oftentimes, if we're honest, the only time we really talk about giving is a congregational meeting when we're going over budget lines. We need to turn giving into an act of worship. I'm not disparaging going over the budget lines, right? That's important. We need to make sure people know where the money is going in that way. But are we making this an act of worship that the whole congregation is engaging in? This is how we're loving those around us. This is what it looks like for us to share the gospel. Give you an example. I found out recently that in the past you all have done a harvest festival, right? Great! Beautiful way to use the resources to love the community, right? Are we seeking to share the gospel at the same time? Right? Let's make sure we're doing that. I don't know. I've not been there. So I, I'm just, this, these are little encouragements, right? Are we using the gospel? Are we sharing it with people? Are we utilizing those resources? That ought to be an act of worship for the whole church to engage in. Not just another thing to do. Not something to check off our list so we feel better about ourselves. No. Giving is an act of worship. In every aspect of our lives, giving ought to be an act of worship. And what we're told here by the Lord in Malachi 3, 
is that he will continue to care for us. He will be faithful to us. And he will overflow blessing. It will be abundant towards us. Do not hold back, brothers and sisters. Do not hold back. There have been so many times in my life you know, I remember a period, I'm a, I'll close with this, I remember a period where money was so concerning me, I was so worried that, I, that Crystal and I might not have enough in our bank account, I remember having a dream one night where I got on my computer and I watched all the money in my bank account, because there's not that much, I watched all the money in my bank account just go down to zero. And my heart in that dream panicked. I felt terror, fear. And I woke up and I realized I do not trust the Lord like I need to. I realized that my hope and my confidence was in the things of this world and not in Him. And I mentioned to you earlier, like that story from seminary, that I've had countless situations where when I've been given the opportunity to bless and care for others, that the Lord has responded in turn and blessed me, I am not lying. Crystal and I had a situation two weeks ago, three weeks ago, where we gave away a bunch of money, and the next day the Lord gave it all back. And I don't even want to tell you how much it was because it was a lot. And the Lord gave it back to us. In supernatural ways, it just shows up. People caring for us. And you go, and you experience something like that, and you go, why am I so afraid? What am I afraid of? Brothers and sisters, do not fear. The Lord will continue to care for you. He will bless you. Give generously. Give generously so that his kingdom may be built up, may be known. So that many may come to repentance and know Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Lord God. I've spoken very from the heart this morning because you know, Lord, that this area of giving, you know in me, Lord, that this is something I've struggled with. You know, Lord God, that I have not always trusted you as I ought. And Lord God, I pray for every single person in this room right now who has wrestled in the same ways to give up of that which they think they have control over, that we're so often, Lord God, we're unwilling to give up of our resources, not because we don't want to help others, but we're scared, God. We're scared that you won't provide 
that you won't stay true to your promises, Lord. Father God, embolden us, Lord, to give, to give faithfully, to give willingly to those around us who we see in need. Lord, I I ask that you would have this act of giving be something that just causes worship within us, Lord. The fact that you've given to us so abundantly that we can even give, Lord. That every good gift comes from you, Lord God. That we can pour out into others. Lord God, in the same way that Christ gave up of himself fully, And completely, we ask, Father God, that we would give up that which you've given to us for others. In the same way that Christ's death has been a blessing to us, may we be a blessing to others. And may you use that, Lord God, not just as an opportunity to physically help others, but to spiritually minister to the needs of those around us. In the same way that Jesus met the woman at the well and told her that he had the water from which she would never thirst again, Lord God, as we give, may we share with people the beautiful reality that they will never want when they follow after you. Embolden us this morning, Lord God. We pray all of this In the name of Jesus, amen.